welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and you're not going to hear too much from me today. Here are some ways to support the Black Lives Matter movement that's taken the world's attention currently. Listen. Listen to the stories and experiences of black people. Listen and contemplate those stories. It may feel uncomfortable. No, it will feel uncomfortable. But hearing about the burden of centuries-long systemic racism against you is not going to be jolly. Learn. Learn to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Empathy has the ability to bring people together and stand in solidarity, rather than promote division. Act. Do something meaningful. Keep educating yourself. Find charities to donate to. Do something practical that's going to help the movement. Speak up, but in a world where everyone wants to put in their own two cents, remember to listen. And then start the process again. It's continuous, and it doesn't just last a day. While this movement has stemmed from events in the United States, it reminds us of racism worldwide, not only that occurring now, but in the past. Leon Bosch has had first-hand experience of this, which shaped his life and musical journey. He's my guest for this episode. He speaks about being a youngster in South Africa, where he was arrested as a political prisoner following the 1976 apartheid uprisings, and upon his release, he went on to study the double bass. Now a British citizen, he joined the renowned Academy of St. Martin in the Fields in 1995, and has devoted himself to recording and performing as a soloist, and with his chamber group, Emusicanti. He shared with me his experiences of being on tour with the Academy, finding the balance between experiencing the essence of music and making some cash. Spoiler, the two don't always coincide. And the parallels between his passion for long-distance running and music. Our conversation was a couple weeks ago, a few days before the murder of George Floyd, and I think a lot of it is especially pertinent now. Here's Leon Bosch. Leon Bosch, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today remotely via Zoom. It's wonderful to have you here, and I don't need to say why it's such a strange time for musicians and indeed everyone in the world right now. And as musicians, we're faced with so much time that we don't usually have, and I'm sure you are accustomed to having a very busy schedule. So my question for you is, what have you been doing during the lockdown to fill your days? Oh, where to begin? I mean, the, the first thing I have to tell you is that I've been struggling to live within the framework of 24 hours a day. It's just not enough. When I left the academy in 2014, I wanted to change the way I lived and what I did. But I soon became too busy in the traditional sense. And uh, it's nearly six years later, and many of the things that I thought I wanted to do didn't get accomplished because I got too busy again in the traditional sense. Although I did initially have a bit of a shock. I mean, my last day's work was on the 16th of March. So here we are uh, two months later, and I haven't played a single note in public. But I have to tell you that I have been so incredibly busy, it's almost like a bonus. I've been able to tend to many things. And the first thing to say is that I realized that I needed to have a timetable so that I knew that at nine o'clock I was going to practice, at 10.30 I was going to... So just to be completely organized, because I felt it would be possible to spend the whole day and not to be able to tell oneself at the end of the day what one had accomplished. 
Exactly. It feels like you're lost in a big ocean or a sea if you have no parameters of time, really. You know, as a musician, it's possible to be with the instrument all day practicing but not achieving anything. It's also possible as an athlete to be running all day but to be running junk miles. It is possible to, to read, for example, but to just consume rather than to read analytically. So it's possible to use time more effectively. So I've been really concerned to try to use my time effectively, but also to concentrate on something that I've never been very good at, and that's relaxation. You know, uh, it is easy to dismiss relaxation, but it's during times of repose that one has one's greatest ideas. Yeah. And I, uh, I should have been in Zambia today. I've nev never been to Zambia, and I was so looking forward to it, but you know, I hope it will happen at another time. In fact, my calendar today reminded me that I was supposed to have a rehearsal with a chamber ensemble. I'm not too disappointed because there are many other things I'm getting on with. There are many things I've done during this time. So I, I have a strict kind of timetable. Well, not strict in the absolute sense, but relatively meaningful timetable. So writing, for example, is something that I promised myself I needed to do because, like everybody else, I have a few stories to tell. I have a life story which is unusual and I, I should put that down in writing because it will disappear. But also, my journey in music has allowed me many interesting experiences, but also I've developed you know, some insights. Education is one thing and knowledge is another, but insight is a completely different thing. And I believe that, you know, at the age of 58, I've learned a few things. Mm. Okay. Uh, for example, uh, as a pedagogue, I know what works, how to teach. It's not good enough just to be an invest is, uh, a virtuous instrumentalist. You also have to be a virtuous teacher. And I've discovered a few things that really work in teaching and uh, I have to write these down. I have an algorithm for teaching, and it's an algorithm that's almost foolproof. So I have to write it down to make sure that it endures. Also, I've dealt with my own personal education during this time. So I've enrolled on many open university courses. So for example, I'm doing mathematics because like everybody else, when is the last time one dealt with mathematics at any uh, rational level? So I'm revisiting maths with an open university course. And it's really good because I'm re-engaging with all these formulae which make life much simpler. That's going to help with your algorithms for pedagogy, as you say. Exactly. How can one possibly live a meaningful life if one doesn't have command of the basics? And mathematics, of course, is one of those basics, you know, numbers. Yeah. But also, you know, there, there's this idea that uh, this lockdown changes how we operate. Just think, what are the things that are most in demand? It is the tools for being able to work remotely. So, I mean, I've done live broadcasts on Radio 4, Radio 3, and without technology to do that, it wouldn't be possible. So we have to learn these things. I have to get better at that. So I'm learning how to do that better. Yeah, adaptability with the times. Exactly. The other thing which I realized was that most musicians learn to play an instrument and they never prosper in a financial sense. And it's because the musical education is very good, but the financial education very poor. Mm -hmm. It's a real strategy to, to ensure that they're not going to be destitute by the time they hang up, hang up their bow or whatever else, put away their mouthpiece. So I've enrolled on a few courses in finance so that I understand how banking works. I know what the repo market is. I know fundamental things that not just have an inkling of what they mean, but to know how they actually work. And that's of course, complex, but I enjoy complexity. So I've, I've dedicated myself to learning to find out exactly how the financial industry works to learn about commodities, to learn how they traded, to know the prices, to know the difference, the real difference. Uh, you know, it's, so it's exciting. Also, I'm reading much more. Reading, to me, is one of those things which allows me to feel grounded. If I sit down for an extended period reading, I come away with a concept, and that I find exciting. 
I've always read about 99% nonfiction uh, ever since I was a kid. I just enjoyed the idea that I would discover things. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's, that's reading, isn't it? Reading encourages empathy, doesn't it? And the more we can understand about others and how the world works, the more that can inform our own craft and what we want to achieve in our own pursuits. I mean, you might have seen in the, in the media yesterday, uh, talking about India, the, how British colonialism dealt with India. Anybody who resisted colonialism was tried to tied to the front of a cannon and they fired the cannon. The level of brutality we forget because we don't learn it in our history. The formal history gives us a glorified version of the British Empire. And every now and again, when one discovers the brutal reality of that period, it is frankly quite disgusting. Yeah, and it's difficult, isn't it? If you are in a position where certain sides of history are presented to you, how do you go about finding the other side, the other stories as well? You know, this actually reminds me of something I read on your website, actually, about how you've seen, which we'll get to very shortly, about your past in South Africa, where you're from, and how you've seen both sides of politics and social divides and how you use that to inform your performance because you are channeling the stories and your experiences. It's easy to forget that music is, in essence, the expression of human life in sound. It is just that we have drifted so far in the West, and I use this advisedly, from the essence of music, because we are concerned about careers, about structures, about money, about venues, about profits, about restaurants, about, you know, we are marketing things and emptying people's pockets rather than nourishing the soul. And I very early in life discovered that thing about music. It touched me. I never realized that it would. I didn't expect it to, but being in a, in a room alone by myself, and having just come out of uh, political detention as a prisoner and having lots of kind of interesting thoughts about how depressed I was, about what had happened to me in prison, it was music that provided a key to unlock some of that experience. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about that journey? Because you mentioned before you want to write down um, your experiences so that they're not lost, but here's an opportunity to provide them via spoken word. And as I mentioned before, you're from South Africa, and... I'd like to know a bit more about your journey that led you to play double bass professionally in the UK during a really socially and politically difficult time for your country. And you mentioned being in prison. 1976 was the year of the big uprising in South Africa against the apartheid regime. Africa was seen as the language of oppression and young people resisted. It soon became clear that this resist, to me at least, that this resistance wasn't just about the language, it was about the whole system. And I was a youngster at school, at a high school, and I decided that we needed to change the world. I mean, look, I've always been a revolutionary ever since I was a kid. From the age of five, I never uh, accepted uh, perceived wisdom. I always challenged. I always, I, a difficult child. Yeah, we all want to change the world. <laughs> and the, the problem is that if you wish to change the world, there are consequences. Because vested interests fight back viciously. And I organized along with... Uh, my committee of uh, the Student Representative Council, a march onto the Parliament in Cape Town. And that march, starting with a few hundred students, soon uh, exploded into tens of thousands of people marching onto Parliament. But unfortunately, this march was attacked viciously by the police with live ammunition, tear gas, dogs, and you name it. And I ended up in uh, prison, and I was charged and put on trial. But you know, suffice to say that my lawyers were very good lawyers, and I was found not guilty in the end. But the experience had scarred me. It's impossible, to, you know, what, it'd be unrealistic and untruthful to say that I walked away with no consequences. 
Yeah, God. I mean, like prison, I don't think I know any professional musicians within my circle who have been in prison. Maybe there have been some, but they haven't said. I imagine it's, it's an experience that you'd share with not that many people. To begin with, I didn't talk about it because every time I mentioned the fact that I'd been a prisoner, political prisoner, I was met with incredulity and people dismissed me as a fantasist. Oh, it doesn't happen. That sort of thing can't happen. Surely, you know, this is made up. So for over 30 years, I never mentioned it to anybody. Do you know, I left the academy in 2014, and it, about last year sometime, I was in a radio program, and I talked about my time as a political prisoner. And I got a phone call from one of my colleagues. And he said, John, how is it possible that we could have worked together for 20 years and I never knew this? And this is the point about uh, this journey. It was impossible to talk about it because I lived in an environment where it was not acceptable, especially since the United Kingdom was the country that protected the apartheid regime. They were friends, very good friends. Margaret Thatcher used the veto 13 times in the Security Council to prevent action against the apartheid regime in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we expected to believe the opposite, that Britain opposed apartheid, did everything possible to the Europe. But the truth of the matter is that my democratic aspirations as a young person were subordinated to British profits. And I mean, look, we have to just accept that this is how real politics works. And I soon realized when I left South Africa, I mean, I was put on trial, I was found not guilty, I went to music college. And the truth is I didn't want to be a musician at that point in my life, I wanted to be a lawyer. And what most people forget also is that when you were my color, which is I'm swarthy skinned, you had to have a permit to study at university. And I applied for a permit to study law and I was refused. And I, just as a joke, I applied for one to study music and I got it. So I thought I better go and study music. But, and I had a very big deficit to make up because I hadn't had great musical education. You know, in the townships, what kind of education do you get? Township education. All they ever expected of people like me was that we should just become manual laborers in life. Right. So had you played the bass before in no. school when you were younger? Not at all. I, I learned the piano, you know, uh, and I learned had a few violin lessons and I was playing the cello. And I had a lesson once a week with a lady called Edna Elphick, who'd studied with Casals. And she did her very best to undo all the problems that had manifested during the bad teaching years. You know, I, my first cello teacher wasn't even a cellist. And, but then I went to university and I realized how far behind I was in terms of development because everybody around me had been to specialist music school. Most of the kids that were studying music at university had been to some of the best schools in South Africa. There are schools like uh, Bishops and Sachs, which are the equivalent of Eton and Harrow, which we know in this country. And I realized that I had a deficit to make up. And I, I had a choice. I could either give up or I could fight. And I decided to fight. I was introduced to the double bass in my second year. And I was taught well. I was taught by a man called Zoltan Kovac, a Hungarian double bass player. Incredible man. He's now dead, but I owe everything to him. He taught me so well that within... 12 months, I played my first concerto with an orchestra. And then he got me to come play as an extra player in the Cape Town Orchestra. I sat with him on the front desk for rehearsals and during concerts, I had to sit in the back. But I learned so much in such a short space of time. I worked slavishly. Every morning I got up really early I, and by seven o'clock I was in university and I wouldn't leave till 10 o'clock at night. I read everything I could lay my hands on. I practiced every day, seven days a week, eight hours a day. I discovered music. I didn't have money to buy music, so I persuaded the librarians at the music college to photocopy and bind things into books for me. I still have these books at home on my shelves. 
and they did it as a favor and sometimes I pay them little bits of money for uh, paper but it was fantastic and it meant so much to me also I realized the power of music my second teacher Max Runger had been part of the wave of refugees that fled Nazi Germany and he'd had a particularly difficult journey himself in life and one day I was playing for him a piece that I was going to be playing in an exam Botticini's Elegy which you probably have heard many times but at the end of my performance of this elegy he didn't say anything he just got up and left the room and I realized as he left the room that tears were streaming down his face and that was the first time in my life I really realized the power that music has to touch something so deep inside us. So for the last 36 years in a music profession, what have I learned? I've learned that we've traveled very far from that essence of music. We talk about it a lot, but the circumstances in which we work don't enable that engagement with music. Mm. The thing that makes the difference for me, and this is the lockdown is so beautiful. As a kid, as a young person, I practiced however long it took to be able to arrive at that personal interpretation of a piece that is manifest on, in a score. Because the composer is trying to tell us something. The composer has an experience of life and we have to unlock that. And also then we have to add our understanding of that particular thing that is given to us, the gift. And it takes time. I want to talk about this later also when I mention the question of running, you know, ultramath running, because this was another area which I soon realized is the only other means of accessing this deep place in the human soul. I mean, there's a lot of really valuable things and listening to your journey, just thinking about working really efficiently, you know, if you'd only learned the double bass starting from your second year and then all of a sudden playing concertos, there must be a way that you've found to work so efficiently and take in as much information as possible, but put it to good use. And then also that's a way of uh, feeding into this, what you were mentioning before about experiencing music, yes. which leads me a little bit to talk about uh, your job that you had in the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, where you played for many years and talking about how that essence of music making that you've been talking about has somewhat been lost. And I know yeah. that a job in the Academy is, must be a dream job for many musicians out there, but there are, I'm sure lots of grim realities of touring life, performing life that a lot of people don't talk about. For example, the drinking, the socializing, trying to find a balance between having fun and enjoying yourself, but also staying on top of your game and looking after yourself mentally and physically. So how do you do it? How do you make sure that you have that sustainability to endure throughout your career? Everybody has their own formula for surviving what you described, which is a very complex life. I soon realized that I needed to have a strategy and I developed a strategy. The first thing to say is that it was an incredible privilege to be a part of the Academy family. The Academy was not an orchestra. It was a concept of how music should be. It was a dream. It was Sir Neville's dream. And as you know, that dream endured till virtually the last day of his life. He lived to be 92 and every day he got up, he'd lived the dream. And that's why in my view, he lived to be so old. And he was in great shape till the very last minute. He was doing something he really believed in. He had a real purpose. And it was the most fantastic formula. It was successful beyond 
anybody's imagination. You know, there's a funny story about uh, Alan Loveday, the violinist, New Zealander, the man who made the seasons famous. Neville apparently rang him one day to say, look, I'm thinking of starting an orchestra. Would you come and play in my orchestra? And this is the time when many orchestras being started. And at that point, Alan Loveday was already playing in the Boyd Neal String Orchestra. And Alan said to Neville, not another orchestra, not you as well, but look what happened to the Academy. So Neville surrounded himself with musicians of incredible qualities. They were not just instrumentalists. They were real musicians. They were artists. They brought something truly special. I joined the Academy in 1995. For me, it had been a dream at that point to be able to do that. I never imagined that it would be possible. I just received a phone call out of the blue one day. Would I come and do a session with the Academy recording some Puccini operas? And I, of course, dropped everything I was doing and turned up. And before long, I was offered membership. And I was lucky that I played throughout my 20 years, not just for Sir Neville, but also for Kenneth Silito, who was director of his own string ensemble, and also his own chamberworks, and then with Iona Brown. So I worked with the original music directors. Each one of them was completely different. Iona, of course, was tough in her own way, and a lot of people didn't survive Iona, but the sound remained the same. It was the Academy sound. So Neville also had a particular way of keeping everybody on their toes. You couldn't be in the Academy and then relax. Every day could be your last. You had to deliver. And of course, I realized that as you travel the world, playing the world's great concert halls, members of the audience paid a lot of money to come hear the Academy because the Academy is the world's greatest orchestra. So we had a responsibility. Every day that you turned up, you had to do the very best you could possibly do. If you didn't, it was a dereliction of duty, not to the orchestra or anybody else, but to the music. Mm. And the beautiful thing about the Academy was it was like a family where the aspiration was to do the very best musically and to share that with the world. The mechanical part was traveling a lot. So most Monday mornings or whenever you were at the airport, and you flew around the world. So everybody talks about the air miles kind of, you know, syndrome. But you had to find a way. As a, as a double bass player, of course, it was difficult because you had to also get your instrument to the airport and, you know, you had to park your car in a big bass. But the kind of practical difficulties, logistical things. But once we were on tour, I had a particular way that I dealt with things. Every day you'd arrive in a different venue, a different town. And everybody goes to the hotel to check in and then they go out for lunch. And my kind of ritual was not to go for lunch with everybody else, but I would go to the concert hall and I would unpack my bass. So I used to buy a sandwich it's just, and a drink. And I would practice for a couple of hours at least until the orchestra turned up for rehearsal. And by the time they'd turned up, I'd done a few hours practice and nobody knew that I had been there. But it was a very useful thing because I managed to accumulate many, many good hours practice. Because as a bass player, unlike the fiddle players, the flute players who can have the instruments in their room, the bass player, you without your instrument. Look, there are only so many good restaurants you can visit, <laughs> art galleries and cathedrals that you want to see. I feel like with touring, there's that kind of sheeple syndrome where everyone just follows the one person who's got a taste card or something and they all end up eating somewhere really mediocre. <laughs> exactly. So once I'd been to all the good restaurants around the world and I'd be, seen all the cathedrals and all the landmarks, there was no need to do it. So I had this very strict regime that I had to, every day off, uh, when, if, let's say we had a day off in Korea or something. I would get up, go to breakfast, and I'd practice all day. I'd only go outside for little breaks. But the rest of the time was business. I was a musician, I was an artist, and I had to keep in shape. It is easy to get into the situation where you come back three-week tour, and the only thing you can play is the program you played on tour. Yeah. 
danger for me was that I also had recitals and concertos when I came back home. So I had to be in good shape. The other thing to know is that practicing in a hotel bedroom is not ideal. It is not like the practice that you do at home with a frame of mind which is well suited to the practice where you, know, you can spend time more creatively and much more productively. Practicing on tour is difficult, but you have to do it. There are many little rituals. The practice ritual was one thing, you know, and, and it, I wasn't totally unsociable, of course. I, but I chose my times carefully when I would go out and drink and celebrate and make, have fun. I like fun. Who does? But I knew that I couldn't allow it to dominate my life. Otherwise, there would be consequences, serious consequences. So my playing was always in great shape. I never allowed myself to slip. Mm-hmm. Now we talk about lockdown. This is such a beautiful period because I can now practice the way I used to practice when I was a youngster. I can practice for as long as it takes to do something the way that I dream about it. And you see, this is what Neville had with his orchestra. Every time he played a Mozart symphony, Haydn symphony, it was the dream. It was exactly how he felt it should be. And that's why it was so good. If you listen to any recordings of Mozart symphonies, you always return to the Academy's recordings and realize that nothing ever has been as good as that. Think of anything. Think of choice of tempo. Think of the balance between the winds and the strings. Think of the violin sound. Think of the integration of the string parts. Think of anything. Think it's almost, I hesitate to use the word, but you know, perfection is an illusion, but it comes very close to being the ideal. Would you say that those recordings, though, were a collaboration between Neville and the players or mostly dictated, but well, I shouldn't say the word dictate, that's quite harsh, but mostly presided by Neville himself? That's an interesting way to, to frame that question. Because as musicians, most musicians are very cynical when it comes to conductors, because they believe that they are better than anybody who ever stood on the podium in front of them. And I think that attitude originates in a kind of a feeling of a lack of control. Mm-hmm. And musicians believe that they can do all these things without anybody telling them what to do. But since I left the academy, I began to conduct. And it was Sir Neville who encouraged me to start conducting. And during the five or six years that I've been conducting, I've discovered a lot of things. I've discovered that pieces that I thought I knew, I didn't really know. I listened to them as they happened. And I played the bass parts with great precision and beautifully integrated with everybody else but I listened as it happened, not in advance necessarily. And I couldn't tell you at any given moment who was playing what. There are always things and pieces that just surprise you out of the blue that you don't expect. Exactly. The other thing which I realize as a conductor is that musicians think that they can get away with murder. They can have conversations, they can do what they like, but the man in front, they think, doesn't notice. And I realize that from the podium, you learn to know people better than they know themselves. You know what everyone's doing at any time. You know how they're feeling psychologically. You know whether they're in good shape as instrumentalists, whether they've been practicing, whether they, you know, you know everything about them. You can see everything. <laughs> you can see everything, yeah. And this is what Neville knew. When I left the academy, he invited me to his house to come and talk about the future. And he told me things about myself that I hadn't realized that he had understood. He's been watching you for so many years and exactly. from a perspective that you wouldn't see yourself. Precisely. The other thing that I realized about, I've been watching Sir Neville's videos, conducting, and then you realize that he had mastered the art of being able to shape a performance to be the dictator without dictating, if you understand what I mean. Mm. The role of the conductor is not just to get everybody to play mechanically together and in time and in tune, but it is to have a vision. And Neville was really very good at shaping that vision and also 
I hesitate to use the word, but impose that vision. So the academy sound is the academy sound. So for example, if you watch a little video of, let's say, Neville conducting Mozart D minor piano concerto with Murray Pariah, and you'll see that eight bars before the first violin is supposed to play something really important has already begun to turn towards them. And this is how far ahead the man was of everything. Right. Yeah. But then I imagine also as a conductor, you have to somehow find a way to make your players want to share that way of making music. The thing that worked very well for Neville was that the Academy was so wildly successful and everybody wanted to be a part of it. Who wouldn't want to tour the world and play Carnegie Hall and all the other famous halls over and over and over again? Everybody wanted to part of it, but they knew that they had to be able to play, that you were amongst people who were great instrumentalists. Now, the important thing here also to realize is that it is not good enough just to be a great instrumentalist because we live now in the 21st century where, I mean, people practice with metronomes and they can churn out more notes more quickly than anybody imagines possible. But we have to also have an intellectual concept and a philosophical concept. And this is what I've developed for my teaching. For my, my students will tell you that sometimes we don't play anything in a lesson. We deal with philosophy because they have to understand what they're doing. Just yesterday, I was giving a lesson online to a student of mine who's playing some Bach, the cello suites. And he said, look, I realize now that I know nothing about Bach, about how I should play it and why. I said, he said, I've listened to everybody else. I've listened to all these recordings of, you know, on YouTube of people, you know, I don't think it's Bach. What should I read? What should I listen to? And it just so happens that I'm writing an article for the Strad about playing Bach on the double bass. And I was able to help him, to give him specific things to read and specific recordings to listen to and specific things to listen out, to watch out for. So for example, people play the suites, but would they be able to tell you fundamental things like this, for example? The suites are grouped in two, one and two, three and four, five and six. The first two suites uh, have minuets. The second have bourrées and then gavottes. And there's a reason for this. And then of course, there's the question of what do the dancers mean? What is an allemand? It's a stately dance, and your feet are close to the, to the ground as you dance it. And the courant... It's like a running dance, isn't it? And unless it has that character, it's just wrong. Again, it's not a matter of opinion. There's this illusion that it's possible to interpret, it, interpret the same piece a thousand times, uh, a different ways. It's not true. There's a framework within which it can exist. And so the prelude, what's the prelude, for example? The prelude in the suite is purely instrumental. And so that is the only time you have the license to play like an instrumentalist. It's very important to have your own stamp on something and, you know, you, you don't want to just emulate every single other great recording that's out there because then that's not authentically you. But then Absolutely. I think it is really important to be informed by the history of these pieces and what these dancers are. Well, in fact, just to remind yourself that they are dancers. I've started teaching a few um, kids some of the movements of the Bach suites and they're dancers because I'm teaching young dancers that one day hopefully become professionals. And you have to remind them that they are dancers and that is a language that they do understand. And so then at least they have something to draw upon yes. when they're approaching this music. You cannot develop anything personal without a framework of understanding. You have to have a basis from which to depart. And my view about the 21st century is that, you know, everybody is fixated by the idea of being different. Now, the truth of the matter is, all you have to be to be different is to be yourself. Yeah, that's so true. You have to be authentic. Yeah, absolutely. So if you understand what a bourree is or what a, a prelude is or an allemand, yours will, by necessity, almost be different from anybody else's because your life experience is different. Yeah. 
but then also just be able to have that confidence and that conviction to do to take out your own interpretation. Sure. How do you liberate somebody to be themselves? It's by giving them a really meaningful intellectual and philosophical framework from which to de depart. One of great understanding. You know what gives confidence? It's understanding. When you command material, it raises your level of confidence because you know where you are. You know, if you read analytically, for example, some says, tell me in six sentences what that book's about. If you really understood the book, you'd be able to do that very quickly and very easily. Yeah. And if you didn't, you will waffle on and on and on, you know, about what it might be about or, you know. So in life, we have to be clear about what we understand, what we don't understand. I think that's the thing with confidence, isn't it? You have to really believe what it is that you're saying. It's like yeah. whenever someone says, oh, wow, you made that look so easy. It's because you, you know it, you get it. That is one of the challenges that a lot of people, not necessarily musicians, but a lot of people not feeling confident to be themselves because there's that expectation that they feel they need to fulfill from someone else. You know, we're always feeling like we're under pressure from other people. Yeah. And I think that's one of the greatest hurdles. Sure. I mean, look, how long does it take to learn a piece properly? Let's say you're going to learn a 15-minute concerto, 20-minute concerto months and you have to spend six hours a day playing nothing else but that piece and by the end of that time it's completely and utterly internalized and you'll know every nuance every note you know the structure you know uh, harmony everything about it and this is why as adults the pieces we play best are the ones we learned and performed when we were younger it's because there was no time limit now for example I mean, look in the last 10 years i've learned and recorded 150 new pieces I do a lot of new music. Last year, I learned 27 new pieces and recorded a lot of them. This year already, I've recorded, goodness knows, quite a lot of new music. Nine South African pieces plus uh, a duo for cello and bass by Alan Stevenson. And you learn a method of how to do these things. You learn a way to deal with, for example, when there's no performance tradition for something, how do you deal with it? How do you learn it? You need to have a framework. So. The most important thing in teaching, I think, is to provide human beings with a framework. The next generation need to have a framework. If you can justify intellectually and in every other way what you do, then you're not on the wrong track. You have to have your template, first of all, yes. and then, yes. you know, you build up your knowledge and then you can sort of explore a little bit outside the box and push those barriers a little bit more. It's not good enough just to say, I don't like it. You know, what is the aesthetics? Is the difference between good and bad? And what makes something, one thing good and the other thing bad? We have to know, we have to, you know... That's something you have to grapple with. It's very nuanced, isn't it? You mentioned doing lots of recordings and solo recordings. I actually met you at a recording session um, not that yeah. long ago, but it feels like about 10 years ago now. <laughs> it does. It really does. Weird concept of time that we're now experiencing. But I remember there was one thing that you said in the coffee break that really, really struck me. And it yeah. was about how you meet a lot of young musicians these days who really strive to do recording sessions because they pay very well and it's quite thrilling to do but then also to not forget why they chose to pursue music in the first place sure. you have projects that you do but then also you have these things that pay the bills so how is it that you find the balance between these two forms of music making i'm not going to call commercial music the devil but you know if you want to dance with the devil you have to know why you're doing it and how you're going to get out of trouble i was invited into the session business about 1995 by one of the great fixers by the name of Gavin Wright. He had great relations with all the great pop singers and all the great film companies around the world. And at the time he invited me to join his orchestra, I already had 10, 11 years experience as a principal double bass player. 
And I don't know how he came across me, but he must have heard things and maybe came to Constitute. But he always did his research. His office was filled with people who had a great track record. They were either leaders of orchestras or leaders of string quartets, or they were soloists, and they could really, there was no question, they could play. Not only that, they'd already done the apprenticeship. They'd played Haydn symphonies. To be able to survive the session business, you have to have a great foundation. Mm. You might think that some of the time it's terribly easy to play because you have semi-bees all day, but there will come those moments when suddenly you have to earn your money. Yeah, you go to sight read and you'll be presented with a page of semi-quavers. <laughs> exactly. And of course, the better you're able to survive these things, the less the level of anxiety that you have. Now, what troubles me a little bit is that nowadays it is the ambition of young musicians to be session musicians. They want to work in the studios. And I know it to be a fact that they don't have this ambition because that's what they believe in. They do it because it's financially worthwhile. Thinking about the monetary reward, at the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Exactly. Yeah. So what does this do? It destroys any sense of the musicianship, the humanity, because music's about the human needs. When you play a phrase, you extend time here, extend time there, you take time to this, and that's what makes music meaningful. When you play with a click track, it removes the element of humanity. It wants precision because it needs to fit with this frame of a film or, you know, whatever else. And if you're willing to make that sacrifice, then and you have to, you have to do it well. I mean, I remember a situation where, this is years ago, I turned up to the air studios and in the middle of the room was the double bass music stand surrounded by the rest of the auction. I thought, well, this is a bit unusual. Just one music stand and two chairs, two double bass stools. And we then opened the pad that was on the music stand. We looked at it and we thought, no, somebody's made a mistake. This is a violin part, but it wasn't. It was the bass part. No. <laughs> and we had three hours to record a pile of music, most of which was incredibly exposed and in the treble clip. <laughs> we survived. Now, the thing is that Gavin, the fixer, could have chosen any one of, God knows how many bass players he had on his books at that time, but he chose the two of us because he knew that we were most likely to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And this is what is important also. You see, the, the session business has changed quite a lot. There was a time when most of the fixers were also the leaders of the orchestras that they fixed. They could tell a relative strength of all their musicians. And it's not the case universally nowadays. You know, so there, there's a lot of politics involved. If you're relying upon work in the session business just by going to the right dinner parties, then that's a kind of dangerous route to travel. Yeah, because you never know when you're going to be presented with a treble clef bass concerto that you have to sight read. Exactly. <laughs> the point is that one has to earn one's Like During my time, I've done probably 7,500, 8,000 pop tracks and films. So I worked with Madonna, Robbie Williams, Joni Mitchell, Michael Jackson. I've done the James Bond films, The Lord of the Rings. But I know that I earned my, the right to be in the studio. When I went to the studio business, I'd already done a lot of work in difficult environments. You know, I was Mr. Uh, Short Notice early on in my life. When I lived in Manchester, there, were, there was the Halle, the BBC Philharmonic in Manchester, and there were other orchestras, you know, there was Opera North and, you know, many orchestras not that far within striking distance. What often happened was that if somebody went ill, let's say 20 past seven in Manchester and they needed somebody to come and play, I was the person they rang because they knew I would turn up and play all the right notes in the right order at the right time. And I earned a living that way. Yeah. And this skill I've been able to take with me throughout my life to help me keep the wolf from the door. Now, something I have to tell you about the session business is I enjoyed it because I was disciplined. I, I was always the first person to arrive. I was there hours now. If a session started at 10, I'd be there by quarter to eight. 
just to know that I'm there. And I was focused on doing my job as well as possible. But I also knew that I was there for a particular reason, that the money was going to help me to finance my dreams. For example, of the 14 solo recordings that I've made, 13 of them have been financed by my commercial work. Mm-hmm. I run an ensemble called Imusicanti. All the concerts that we play, because, you know, music apparently doesn't make money at the box office. So if you have a quintet playing a chair music concert, you have 200 people turn up, they pay five pounds each, you're in trouble. But fortunately, I'm able to promote these concerts because my commercial work earnings can underwrite the losses. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing, isn't it? We've used the word framework so much. We were talking a bit about business acumen and how um, this is something that a lot of musicians don't know about, but it's quite a clever business model really is to have something that can finance the other sort of passion projects in your life and I suppose these days everyone is expanding their portfolio careers by doing lots of different things not only for just to expand our skill sets but also for our well-being as well because I think it keeps us sane to do a variety of different things but I suppose you could say to those young people striving to be session musicians that the financial reward is kind of the bonus at the end, really. Exactly. And the pleasure is the journey to get there. Davina, you're absolutely right. You know, if one focuses on the essence, the thing that we dreamed about as kids, and we should retain our connection with our dreams, the ultimate should be total freedom of expression as an artist, without let no hindrance. I mean, little side, commissioning music costs money, and composers need to live. This is, the, uh, this is the other thing I spend money on. You know, I have friends, people that I've known for a long time, composers, and I always get around to commissioning them to write something so that I can put a little money back into their, to the, the pockets of the people that I respect. And I don't play the piece just once. I play it over and over, and I will record it. I will try to broadcast it. I will try to do justice to what they present me with. I'm lucky to have had in excess of 100 pieces written for me. And I also try to publish them. I have a little publishing company called Musicanti Publications or Publishing. Again, it, my hard-earned money from the session business keeps that thing afloat. But it means that the music is available. There are so many complex things. I mean, uh, the, the thing that is always on my journey in life is that it's not about me. I know it's a trite thing to say, but when you attend to everybody else's dreams, it enables for you the most incredible life. Yeah. I have to say that all the wonderful things that I've been able to do in my life have been because I've devoted my life to everybody else. I get the most wonderful messages from people that I encountered at Chamber Music Festival years ago. They will date their success to a particular interaction I had with them in a particular place and something I told them. I sometimes tell them very uncomfortable truths and there have to be those people in life that tell you the truth. Sometimes I wish I'd had more people like that in my corner to always point me in the right direction. But because I didn't have that, I came to Britain as a, just a young person with nothing. I had a raincoat and a suitcase and a dream. I had no, nobody to help me. Financially, if I didn't win competitions, I would starve. And I had nobody advised me about uh, tactics in life. I had to make up my own tactics. I had to work out how mortgages work. How do you get a driver's license? How do you buy a car? Do you have to insure it? Nobody to advise me about anything. I had to find out everything by myself. But that made me incredibly resourceful. I know the processes for most things, how to commission a piece, how to get it performed, how to write a funding application, how to do this, how to teach somebody this. And that's what I mean about, you know, the intellectual framework. When I teach, I have a framework. I know what I'm trying to achieve. And my students learn how to make analysis when they go to performances. So, for example, you hear somebody playing Brahms Violin Concerto in the festival hall. 
how do you decide at which level it is working and not working? The first level is all the notes in the right order in time and in tune. That's the fundamental thing. The second thing is, you know, the, uh, the syntax, the question of dynamics and articulation. Notes are either long or short or loud or soft. And then the third question is all the intellectual stuff, phrasing. Every note has a purpose, either going somewhere, coming from somewhere. And the final thing is the aesthetic thing. What do I believe about this piece and how do I feel, you know, what is yeah. my unique message in this? So my students, when they go to hear a performance, they can tell you themselves and everybody else at what level things are consistent when they're working and when not working. Not just say, I didn't like it or I like it, but... Proper analysis. And that's what you need in session stuff, you know. You turn up, you look at the music, and it's like your sight reading exercise. Ease it in. What dynamic? Does it say fast or slow? And then you just faithfully... Yep, you just got to get it in the can. Yeah, exactly. It's like being chucked into the deep end. Um, yeah. Because I have this segment on, on my podcast called Music College Didn't Prepare Me, uh, where listeners can share... Um, anecdotes or experiences that you know yeah. they didn't learn about in music school that, that learning how to play in tune did not prepare you for um, and yeah. there's so many things basically all of life really yes and you have the only way to learn about that is to go out there and just experience it um, and get hurt well. you know you every time you fall over get up dust yourself down and well that's how you learn yeah exactly. just look the problem with our country the United Kingdom is a very simple one, and it's a simple one to fix in essence. And I will tell you what I think the problem is. We don't know who to listen to because we've been encouraged to look in the wrong direction and to listen to the wrong things. So, and to put this very clearly for you, we have government supposed to be in charge of running our society. But I can tell you almost without fear of contradiction that most of these guys have never done a day's work in their lives mm. yet they talk about what it means to work in the economy and to do things uh, we have a, a, a secretary of state for education who's never taught in a classroom we have a arts minister who does know the difference between a sonata and a symphony we have amateurs trying to do a job for which they ill-equipped we have a lot of politicians that are not really in touch with the yeah. actual people, yeah. But it's not only the politicians, you see. Let's take some of our great companies. They are run by a professional class of chief executives. Not necessarily schooled in or understanding the industry they're running. They work only from spreadsheets and it's maximizing profit. Now, to be durable and resilient, you have to understand what it is you're dealing with. And this is important not just for the wider world, but also at the level of that we talk about the musicians. How do you develop a resilient career? You know, look, I started working in 1984. It's 36 years later and I'm busier than ever. It could all have just run out, you know, because a lot of orchestras I worked for disappeared. Mm. This is not the first economic recession we're going to face. There have been many more before. I mean, I've lived through Margaret Thatcher's recessions, John Major's recessions. I've lived through negative equity, through 15% interest rates, all the economic shocks of the last, you know, 40 years. And every time there was an economic shock, one of the orchestras or two of the orchestras that I worked with would disappear. If music, young musicians want to learn how to develop a career, they have to talk to the people that have already traveled that route. I know from other people that I've spoken to and also listening to that recent in tune um, interview that you had with Sean Rafferty yes. on Radio 3 
that you're really into your ultramarathons and that you ran 86 miles. Is that your, that's your record. And it took you 21 hours. I have, I have so many questions about this. I mean, some things, you know, for example, the practicalities of running for 21 hours. When do you stop? When do you eat? When do you go to the bathroom? But um, what attracts you to ultramarathons? Also, what is going on in your brain when you're doing it? I think it was Zatopek, the uh, Hungarian athlete, who said that if you want to run, run a mile. If you want to change your life, run a marathon. And if you want to talk to God, run an ultramarathon. Now, what I mean about this is that it's only when you run an ultramarathon that you begin to truly know yourself. You have to take yourself to the point where you can crumble. You almost feel that things are going so badly you would rather die. Now, how did I start running? I started running because all the touring, all the fine restaurants with the academy, which you talked about earlier, I ate a lot of good food and I put on quite a bit of weight. And I always had this vision of myself as the athletic young person I was. I could walk on my hands as a kid. I could run fast. I could, you know. And then one day, still with this illusion in my mind about this fit young person, I went for a run around the block and realized that actually the truth was very uncomfortable, that it felt so disgracefully awful that I was ashamed. So the next day I went out and I ran again, same thing, and it felt terrible. And I kept running the same route around the block, one kilometer from my house around the block. And it was awful, it was truly awful. But soon it became better. It, became, it was so much better that I added a third of a kilometer. So I ran 1.3 kilometers and that was like a real triumph. Then I ran three kilometers without stopping. Then I ran five. Then I started doing park run. And then I realized I was getting better. I was getting faster and changed my diet. I lost weight. On my 50th birthday, I decided I was going to run 10 kilometers. It took me an hour, but I did it. It was painful. I pulled my calf muscle, and, but it felt so good to have done something which I thought was impossible. And after that, I decided that I would run a half marathon. And I finished it. And I hadn't hit the wall. I felt I continued. So I thought, well, maybe that was a fluke. I'll do another one. So I did another I think by this point, you are quite addicted to, to the feeling of, of achievement and also the, the journey, the self-betterment. Yes. It was the same kind of thing that you feel with music. You pick up a piece that you can't play and eventually it makes sense and you can get through a piece of music. Something that was impossible when you started the piece becomes commonplace. From a half marathon onwards, I decided I needed to try a marathon. At that point, running a marathon was just like seriously crazy athletes do that. And I finished. I ran my first marathon and that was an incredible achievement because I never thought it would be possible for somebody like me, just an ordinary musician to run a marathon. And then I began to understand that there was more to this thing than meets the eye. So I went to Marrakesh to run another marathon. Mm. I enjoyed that. And I saw Marrakesh the first time in North Africa. Then I went to Iceland to the Reykjavik marathon. I decided that it was one thing to travel the world as a musician. I was now going to travel the world as an, an athlete or pretending to be an athlete. Then I realized that actually a marathon, I could do better. It wasn't the end of the world. I was getting faster, but there was more. So I decided to do my first ultramarathon. So I entered in South Africa where I was born, something called Two Oceans, which runs from one side of the peninsula to the other side and different oceans. And how many miles is that typically? That was 56 kilometers. Uh-huh, right. But I finished it. And, uh, you know, I had some cramp along the way and things were painful. And I sprinted for the finish line. I nearly cramped up completely. And then I thought, but actually, I need to get better than this because part of that was so painful I'd rather have died. But I finished it. And then I realized that I need help. So I went and found myself a coach. 
the reason I made that decision was because I realized that there's no musician that has played solo on the stage of Carnegie Hall that did it by themselves. They, were all, they always had great teaching. I mean, Zuckerman, taught by his teachers in the world, you know, everybody. In a way, you booked a lesson, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I looked around for a coach and I, then eventually I decided this is the person I need to go to. So I went to this man called Cliff King. And it turns out I made a good decision. He was just the best person for me. The first question said to me, why are you running? What are you running away from? <laughs> yeah. And then he said, so what, what, do you, what are your ambitions as a runner? What do you want to do? And I told him, and he said, okay, we'll start tomorrow. Meet me at such and such a place. And my God, my first engagement with him was absolutely terrifying. He told me the unvarnished truth. And to put it in a nutshell, but basically made me do certain effort levels up a hill. And he made me realize that actually I had no idea what 10% effort was, 50%, 75%. And he said, that's terrible. And I hope you don't have the same lackadaisical attitude in your music. Oh, ouch. Here, he's providing you with that truth and that framework that you're always working within. And then I told him that I wanted to run the Comrades Mar uh, Ultra Marathon, which is the world's oldest ultra marathon, 89 kilometers. Oh. It's a psychological thing, but also it's a physical thing. You have to know your body. There's so many things you have to know about how your body responds and what you need to do to get the best out of your body. I realized that early on in my marathon, uh, ultramarathon journey, you have so much time to yourself. I don't run with music. I run completely just me, my heartbeat, and my feet. To begin with, all the troubling things began to surface. The person that insulted you in 19, whatever it was, the competition you lost, and the memory lapse you had in 1922 and you know all the terrible things that happened to you <laughs> first things that you thought about when you're running so these things are now starting to come into your brain as you're and as you run you process these things because there's nothing else to focus on these are the things that are arising out of the depths of your uh, psychological experience and your you know your real experience mm -hmm. to come to terms with them and then eventually i began to realize that the world became beautiful I began to see the beauty around me. I began to understand the beautiful things that we're capable of, human, as, of as human beings and also the fact that nothing, there's no limit to what we can do as human beings. In a way, is that sort of like a bit of a distraction from any pain that you might be experiencing? I mean, you mentioned cramp and pressures and stuff like that, but then you, you focus on something else and then that way yeah. you're not thinking about the pain anymore. Mentally, you arrive in a place which you didn't ever imagine existed. The other thing which is beautiful about ultramarathon running is this. The first few ultramarathons were difficult because I'd never run that far before. But what I soon realized was that eventually it becomes normal. Now, my coach, for example, if you look at him walking around the high street in his tracksuit bottoms and top, you'd think nothing of him. But show him a hill and he will leave the rest of the world standing. And this is the truth of the matter. To be in shape as a human being requires enormous effort. And for my students, I also tell them, you know, to be a fully functional human being, you have to be in good shape at different levels. The first level is physically, the second level is intellectually, and the third is spiritually or psychologically. And every day you get up, you have to tell yourself where you think you stand on those three fronts. Physically, give yourself a mark out of 10. Where are you in terms of physical well-being? Mm. Then intellectually, where are you? in terms of well-being, and then psychologically. And one has to be honest with oneself with these things. So during the lockdown, I take care of myself physically. I ran every day for the first 30, however many days of it, and now I cycle and run alternate days. 
but I know that my, you know, physically I'm in good shape. Yeah, I think it's a very, very good way just to check in with yourself and just because I think if we ignore these things and they can just get away from us without us realizing and then you end up in a, a place that you don't want to be. As I mentioned to you in my email, I have a segment in my podcast called the Wildcard Question Round. Absolutely, yes. Looking forward to it. I'm glad you're looking forward to this. A lot of people get quite nervous. But um, this is where you have the opportunity to choose what I ask you next based on three choices. So we have introduction to the double bass, spirit animal, and unexpected talents. Mm. Number three. Okay. So unexpected talent. So finish the sentence, please. You may not know it to look at me, but I am exceptionally good at. Good Lord. Yeah. It's a way to put you on the spot. (laughs) Understanding how the world really works. I think I get that having spoken to you. I feel like the way that you always putting things into frameworks, as we've used that word many, many times, and also understanding and analyzing and then from that comes the freedom of expression yeah i have a one golden rule which i have carried with me throughout life i never talk about anything that i don't understand that i've not read about Mm. not studied so when people talk about television shows i don't join the conversation when they talk about stuff i don't know about i listen but when they talk about stuff that i know about i'm happy to engage so yeah Never talk about things that you don't know anything about. You have to travel the journey and done the reading before you're entitled to an opinion. That's a fair point, isn't it? What's that saying? Better to keep your mouth shut and look like a fool than open your yes. mouth and prove it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you have to run the risk of appearing to be crazy when you really know about things because people have not experienced what it is you've experienced. And it's a very lonely life when you're really an expert about something. Yeah. And that, that goes back to what I said before. You have to really believe what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you have to be able to justify. Intellectually, you have to know that you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. It's like with the running. The uh, Ridgeway, I didn't use a map. I just used my uh, navigation, my common sense. I'd, of course, previously studied the maps and we'd run little bits of the route. But I try to run as light as possible. No baggage. You know, you have to go through life without baggage. Otherwise, yeah. and I learned how to run ultramarathons with no bag, with nothing, carrying nothing, but using just the checkpoints and also having a team of people that help me. And this is important. You have to know who the people are in life that are going to help you on your journey. You know, your support staff. Oh, we've, got, we've covered a breadth of topics there. Leon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Where can people find out more about yourself and follow you? I use all the social media platforms. I have a website, www.leonbosch.com. I have a website for my ensemble, www.imusicanty.com. Uh, and also the publishing company has www.musicantypublishing.co.uk. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. That was Leon Bosch. I found his stories inspiring and they've given me a lot to think about in regards to my own music making and how I go about my life against the backdrop of current global events. So I hope you found it interesting too. That's it for today. Special thanks to Ros Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. 
Huge contrabass science thanks to Leon for being my guest this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. And I can't highlight this enough, how important it is to listen. Not just to me, but to each other. Listening is the first step towards learning and broadening your understanding of the crazy world around you and is one of the driving factors towards me doing this podcast. And I think the more we can listen and understand those around us, the stronger the framework for standing together in solidarity with each other. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Keep listening and learning and stay safe. Chat to you soon. Bye. Thank you.